electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, who's living large in this market? How about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, whose personal wealth yesterday alone grew by almost $20 billion. But money does not make you happy. Andrew, we know this, do we not? Epidemiologist and dean of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health on the role schools and corporations can play in a global recovery. The carnage that we saw happen at the outset of this pandemic, the economic and clinical carnage can be prevented. And thriving in a time of change. Author Bruce Feiler on how to adapt. We are in what I call a life quake, which is a massive period of change that has aftershocks for years. Those stories, plus the NFL's $75 million testing plan and the companies talking one way but paying another. It's Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. Becky's off today. Let's talk about uh, Amazon. Doesn't seem like they're so dependent on, on, you know, whether things open. This has been the big play for things being closed. But Amazon's going to postpone Prime Day, uh, which I don't really understand because it's two days. The two-day summer sales event is typically held in mid-July. The company hasn't set a date, but earlier this month it told third-party sellers to use the week of October 5th as a placeholder date uh, for promotions uh, and coupons. Amazon was one of the leaders of yesterday's tech rally after Goldman Sachs. An analyst there hiked its price target to $3,800. $3,800 a share. The stock rose uh, nearly 8%. Uh, bringing the market cap to $1.59 trillion, CEO Jeff Bezos added an estimated $13 billion to his uh, fortune in a single day. I think he gets six and a half, um, but he's not happy, uh, I don't think, um, really. Uh, no, he is. He probably is. But money does not make you happy. Andrew, we know this, do we not? Because we're happy and we don't have a lot. Uh, I mean, we have plenty. Makes you happier. Happier. We have plenty compared to a lot, lot obviously. But not compared to Bezos. We're like a little flea on the Well, everybody's a tail pop you compared to Bezos, Joe. except for maybe Musk. Right, except for Musk. Yes, right. Andrew. Joe, do you rem- we're going to talk about Musk in a second. Do you remember, though, this must have been nine years ago. I mean, I, I want to think even early on when I was on the show, we used to always talk to, to analysts and investors about the law of big numbers and say, could we ever get to a trillion, trillion dollar market You would ask cap. the question. I remember. I know. Trillion dollar market cap. Quadrillion. Right? We talked about it in the context of Apple. And, and here we are. And it's like, look around and uh, oh, my God, we have now, you know, it's not just one or two. We've got we've got we've got a, a bunch. Yeah. And, and we had to look up what's next. More. Remember? And do you remember what's next? Quadrillion. I think. Yes. I yes. think. Back in the day. I, I want to get to um, Google. Talking Google. about a guy. Who, I don't I don't know. If, this next company is going towards a trillion or not, uh, but Tesla, that stock uh, rising 9.5 percent during yesterday's session. Uh, Elon Musk's personal wealth jumping by nearly six billion dollars. Tesla scheduled to report 
quarterly results tomorrow and yesterday's action now prompting this tweet from Jim Cramer. He said, quote, moves like we are seeing in Microsoft and Tesla and Amazon are truly insane and unlike any I have ever seen in my life. Now, Microsoft was another big gain, rising more than 4% yesterday. So, insane, guys? What do you think? Pretty frothy, Think seems like, yeah. Certainly does. But it- well, I mean, S&P inclusion could be around the corner. So $4.5 trillion that are indexed to the S&P 500 need to chase Tesla. Maybe this is not frothy. Maybe this is the chase in advance of inclusion. Yeah, but but that's a technical but, but thing. Inc- that doesn't- but the underlying business. Forget right. about. I mean, I understand the the technical dynamics, and it's a great. It may be a great business, but is it, is it that great a business? Is it worth more than four G? I mean, everybody. We have all kinds of excuses now because in, in a in a period like this where where earnings aren't uh, reflective right. of what a company can earn, you start doing price to sales. And then, you know, it's like, well, it's different this time and 10 times price of sales. Maybe it should be 15 times, but it is. And you've got uh, low interest rates. And, and, and nowhere I mean, else to go rates, and money right? sloshing around. Melissa, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to talk about IBM. I don't know if Tesla is going to get to a trillion, but I know a com- one company probably will not get to a trillion ever. And I'm introing IBM for you there. Um, <laughs> that I just, is damning. <laughs> Do you think, unless, unless we, as a country, do a reverse dollar split or something, uh, there's just no way, I don't think, right? Can we do a 10 probably for one, not. one for probably 10? Probably not. We could do a one for 10, maybe, and get it to... Uh... You're, you're, prob- you're probably going to be right, Joe. They reported earnings after the bell yesterday. Earnings and revenue beat expectations, but revenue declined for the second straight quarter as the pandemic took a toll. IBM said many clients continue to delay projects and defer purchases. CEO Arvind Krishna said it's likely that economic recovery will be longer than they hoped for back in March. IBM did not update its full-year guidance, but the bright spots here is that the things um, around which IBM is building a turnaround plan, namely cloud, for instance, that business was strong uh, in the part of the business that, that did see that sort of drag from the pandemic with services. Those revenues were down 7% on the quarter. Um, but overall, a 5.6% and a good start for this new CEO who, who took the helm just in April. That's true. Yes, 133. I, I got, I've, got, I've got issues uh, with my guy putting on a laptop and all this stuff here, guys, but, uh, or guys and gals. But, uh, so I was going to look up a market cap, but what's, what's IBM's market cap? It's like 100 plus, right, 100 billion plus. To, I don't have that, that uh, right here, but can you do that for me? You guys have, can you believe I'm that? I'm here for you right now, Joe. Yeah. We're You're, right now, we're at $112 billion. God almighty, which is a lot more than GE. $112. Um, it's about the best thing I can say. Quest Diagnostics, the largest uh, U.S. lab company, is warning it'll be impossible to increase coronavirus testing capacity this fall as it will have, uh, it's got to cope with demand associated with flu season. We've talked about the convergence and, and that would be the, a, a, a resurgent coronavirus during flu season would, would be a problem for, in a lot of ways for the healthcare system. Speaking of the Financial Times, the company's executive vice president said there is no way capacity is going to double in the next three months. Uh, he said other solutions need to be found to detect uh, patients in addition to the nasal swab tests that are currently in use. As pro uh, football camps are set to begin, the NFL and players have agreed to pandemic protocols just a day after some high-profile players 
called out the league on Twitter. Uh, the plan calls for players, coaches, and staffers uh, to register two negative tests before they can be admitted to facilities and to be tested daily for the two, first two weeks of camp. If the league-wide positive test rate is below 5%, the test frequency will drop to every other day uh, after two weeks. Uh, the NFL has enlisted Opco's bioreference labs uh, to turn uh, things around uh, thousands of test results in under 24 hours. The NFL also reportedly offered to eliminate the preseason. Uh, if the players' union accepts that offer, it would be a big step uh, towards starting the season uh, on time. And um, a lot of what was said uh, yesterday, uh, as you probably saw, was that these players, I, I think was it Russell Wilson or others, said, we got to play, we want to play, we want to play for our, our Yep. You know, just for the, the mental health of, of the maybe of the country and for all the players, I, you know, we all want to do things quickly. We all want to be able to, you know, to get back to, to something normal quickly. But we just, you know, you don't want to, I guess, do it, you know, rush into something rashly, which you regret later. And I don't know if that's if that's the case here. I obviously want it to happen. I I don't mind those uh I don't mind those cardboard fans. I think they look kind of cool, and I, I can't really tell the difference. You just It's better than empty seats, uh, and I certainly don't think I'd mind no preseason. But the testing itself is supposed to cost $75 million, according to sources close to the situation. Right. And, Joe, you, you were doing that story about Quest Diagnostics being yeah. overrun with the backlog you know, in flu season. you got to think all these all these uh, you know, unions and, and um you know, sports associations, colleges, the demand for testing going into the fall is going to be off the charts. And so what do you do when that collides with flu season and just the, the need to test people in general, um, getting those test results back in a delayed fashion when, when right. the NFL has under not, 24 hours? Not you know, these are larger questions that need to be asked. $75 million is a lot. But the, I think Patrick Mahomes' contract the, was $400 million, so uh, right. keep it in perspective. <laughs> The True. question, though, I'd ask is, do we believe that these tests are taking away tests that would have otherwise been available to the public? No, I, I, and that's I, the part I, I'm not sure about, right? I don't, it's just not. It's de minimis, though, the number of people you're talking about when you're doing you're literally doing millions and millions of, of tests. So I, I don't know. Um, right. Is it an essential business? I mean, is sports an essential business? No, but I mean, there's so much money. It's like w w when you talk about college sports. It's like, oh, we can just delay those. But think about the, the monetary hit from, from right. all the colleges for that. You, I mean, it's more than just, right. oh, these are, you know, everybody wants to go out and, you know, play games and have fun and have sport. I mean, it's more than that. It's, I don't know, it's right. important that we, I, I can see why people want to get back to it. Anyway, what do you got? You got more th stuff going so, on, Sorkin. Is it Tuesday? That means if it's Tuesday, it's a it, column. It's a Sorkin. Tuesday. I've been working on a column. And I'll tell you what, but I'll tell you what it is. So we've been talking on this show a lot about over the past several months, corporations speaking out on all sorts of social issues. By the way, we're seeing it in the NFL, whether it's Black Lives Matter uh, or LGBT rights or people talking about sustainability or, you know, companies are doing this more and more and more. But then what I what I did was I wanted to look back to see what kind of uh, political donations corporations uh, have given over the last couple of years. And I'm not talking just about PACs. I'm talking about corporate treasury money. So this is shareholder money. And interestingly, uh, corporate money is the, there is the largest giver uh, to 
governors associations, attorney generals associations and others at the state level throughout the, the country. It's not individuals who are actually the largest donors, it's corporations. But uniquely, and while they give to both sides, they uniquely give, as you might imagine, more to Republicans. And more uniquely in this circumstance, as you'd imagine, given these social issues, they are oftentimes at odds with the positions that they're now taking publicly. And I know there's lots of questions about hypocrisy and whether this is, these are all marketing statements and public stances. But when you go back and you look at a Walmart that talks about, you know, uh, their employees as heroes when it comes to health, uh, putting themselves at risk for health there. And, and by the way, they say they're for uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they are supporting effectively uh, the Republican uh, Attorney General's Association, which is the same group, of course, that is trying to undo uh, that. AT&T, which has, has lots of policies about LGBT rights and, and, and trying to uh, foster a more uh, better environment, was giving money to the Republican Governors Association, which helped uh, elect the governor of North Carolina, which uh, you know, created the bathroom bill, which was then overturned. So there's lots of back and forth. And you really can go through these numbers. Uh, the, the Center for uh, uh, Public, uh, in, uh, the Center for Public Accountability actually delved into these numbers. They're all public, but you actually have to go and look at how the money comes into the what's called a 527 and how it then goes from the 527 to the different politicians. Now, interestingly, the companies can say, I, I, we didn't take a position or a policy position at all. All we did was give to these groups, and they gave the money out uh, however they wanted. But I, I think there's a question in this world whether that's a, whether that's a tenable position, uh, given some of the public comments and public stances that the companies are taking. That's what uh, this column uh, what are these companies is going about. Having said that, they what, do it because they want to have they, a relationship with these people. Uh, and, whole, and that makes your, sense it, it, because your, your you're, whole perspective. What are these companies doing, given to these nasty Republicans? Uh, and yesterday you told me that. No, no, no. But Democrats do better. Businesses do better with higher taxes and more regulation when Democrats are. So I, I don't look, even know no, why no, they're giving to the GOP so, in the first place. Look, it, <laughs> look. I will make the argument if I was a corporate leader that if you're a Facebook, for example, and you have 47 attorney generals that are coming after you, giving to the Attorney General's Association, Republican and Democrat, which is what they've done, may make sense. All I'm saying is that when you give money to these associations, no, I, know. You don't know. It, I think in this day and age, it's hard it. to sort of stand back and say, I, just, I don't know what they're doing over here. I know. Or I, haven't this I haven't needled you in a while. I haven't, needled, I haven't needled you in a while, so I just figured it. Next on SwakPod, the dean of Harvard School of Public Health weighs in on coronavirus transmission in the classroom. Professor Michelle Williams. We are learning that transmission is very likely to be about the same for children between the ages of 10 and 19 as transmission from adults to adults. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC.
back-to-school time, at least traditionally, is quickly approaching. And as new coronavirus cases rise in states such as California and Texas, a number of major U.S. school districts have already decided to begin the academic year with virtual learning. Yesterday, we learned that teachers in Florida are suing that state to block an emergency order requiring schools to open next month with in-person instruction. They say, with a virus surge, the order violates a provision in the Florida Constitution requiring the state to ensure schools are operated safely. And in what's become a heated debate over reopening schools, the one burning question has been whether or not and how efficiently children can spread COVID to others. A new study from South Korea says children younger than 10 transmit COVID-19 to others much less often than adults do. But the risk is not zero. And those between the ages of 10 and 19 can spread the virus at least as well as adults do. The findings suggest that as schools reopen, communities could see clusters of infection take root that include children of all ages. Yesterday, we heard from former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb about that study. Kids are less likely to become symptomatic, but when they do get symptomatic COVID, perhaps they're just as likely, if not more likely, to spread the virus. And that might not be because they shed more virus. It might be behaviors. So can schools be safe? Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke with Michelle Williams, dean of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The thing about COVID-19 is that it has really made it very clear that we are in a situation where science is important and science, we're learning about this virus every single day. Here's the deal. Um, We are learning that transmission is very likely to be about the same for children between the ages of 10 and 19 as transmission from adults to adults. We're dealing with an infectious disease and here we have to be considering the basic factors of how do we break human-to-human transmission. Opening schools is going to require us to do the very best possible to protect children, students, students, and adults, family members and teachers. And it's going to require our following the science and updating what we do in practicing uh, safe measures as we open schools and keep them open um, based on science. So uh, just to be clear, though, you would open schools? You can't have one basic answer across the country because we have so much variability in community spread. Um, You know, in New York State, where transmission has been broken because of the implementation of public health practices, you could safely open schools. In places where the positivity rate for COVID is less than 5%, there are protocols that we could put into place that could safely open schools with the right social distancing, mask wearing, and the proper hygiene. In places where the population, the community spread is upwards of 25%, I would basically say uh, do everything necessary to bring the community spread down, allow that uh, spread to go down and start to safely position students for re-engaging in learning with online learning until the positivity rate comes down to 5%. Michelle, this this is the governor of Missouri, uh, Mike Parsons. This is what he said just yesterday in the St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch. He said, these kids have to get back to school. And if they do get COVID-19, which they will, he says, and uh, they will, when they go to school, that they're going to get it, they're not going to go to hospitals, he says. They're going to go home and they're going to get over it. Is that the right position to take? 
No, it's not the right position. And I think the issue here, and we all have to understand this, is the science tells us that there, the likelihood of transmission from person to person begins with individuals not having social distancing. Kids do transmit the disease. This is not the kind of disease where in, it's only about the individual that's positive. It is about breaking the cycle of transmission to vulnerable individuals. And so I think the governor is missing the point that there's a shared responsibility here for us to practice public health measures that would break the transmission of the disease to the more vulnerable people. Look, we've got 141,000 people who have died from this disease. The transmission rates are high in certain places where we have to protect the vulnerable, those with pre-existing conditions and those who are um, at high risk, older, the elderly. Right. So, Michelle, I think the big question, though, and we can flip it around. We're, we're on CNBC, so we should talk about business, is reopening yeah. businesses and what businesses should be reopened and what shouldn't. But also trying to recognize or understand to the extent there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Are we talking about 12 months from now? Are we talking about longer? Are we talking about less time in terms of either vaccines or therapeutics that are going to be game changers so that we won't be having the same conversation uh, then? Thank you for that. You know, this is really important. Um, and one of the things that we at the Harvard School of Public Health is doing is trying to position CEOs and leaders to have access to the best public health knowledge that is available so that they can integrate the public health framing and public health um, principles in designing a reopening plan and ensuring that when those plans are implemented, we're not going through a cycle of opening and, and closing again because of surges. Listen, it's important that we practice the best possible public health response to encourage the consumers, but also employees that the state-of-the-art public health protocols are in place to protect them in the workplace and in the commercial space. We can't, again, afford to have a complete lockdown of our economic um, activities and system. It is a threat to the health of our society, our economic health. The carnage that we saw happen at the outset of this pandemic, the economic and uh, clinical carnage, can be prevented. And so what we want to do and what we are doing at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health is to make available the best public health practices, how to do exposure and risk assessment, how to mitigate transmission through designing healthy, safe workplaces and commercial spaces, and then how to prepare and position to prevent another crisis like this that brings us down to our knees in, in the space of our economic uh, uh, health and wellness. We can't afford to have our bottom lines hit again. Michelle, we, we, we very much appreciate your perspective and your insight on all these issues, and we hope you come on back uh, as we monitor the progress, hopefully, of, uh, of the situation that we're living through. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, we are living with change. Big change. 
the linear life of predictable stages that we were promised, that's gone. And it's been replaced by a non-linear life, which has many more uh, transitions in it. Bruce Feiler of the New York Times says life is the transitions. Learning to navigate these periods, learning to master transitions, is the most essential skill that each of us needs right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. You're listening to Squawk Pot. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. In this COVID-19 era, companies, executives and employees are all trying to navigate a lot of change from the economic uh, crisis this has become to the health crisis of remote work uh, and everything in between. Our next guest is the author of Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. Joining us right now is Bruce Feiler, and uh, it's a fascinating book. I don't think it was I don't know if you were anticipating COVID, uh, but life is in the transitions. And there's so many transitions that are taking place, Bruce, right now between remote work, between people trying to figure out what the future holds for them, people losing their jobs and having to make those transitions. And I'm curious what what the biggest lesson uh, you you discovered uh, in your in your journey uh, looking at transitions. Well, thank you for inviting me, Andrew, and everybody else. And yes, we are in what I call a life quake, which is a massive period of change that has aftershocks. For years, And I got interested in these periods because I went through a life quake. As you know, I had cancer. My family's real estate business was hit hard. My dad tried to take his own life. And there wasn't in one place I couldn't find a book that helped you when you get hit by life in all these different directions. So I went out seeking wisdom from others. I crisscrossed the country collecting hundreds of life stories from Americans of all 50 states. And then with a team of 12 people, I spent a year combing through these stories, looking for patterns that could help all of us. And what I learned is that the linear life of predictable stages that we were promised, that's gone. And it's been replaced by a nonlinear life, which has many more uh, transitions in it. So I've been working on this book for five years. And as you mentioned, lo and behold, it arrives in this moment when all of us, every CEO, every executive, every employee is dealing with a transition. So the answer to your question of like the most important thing is that learning to navigate these periods, learning to master transitions is the most essential skill that each of us needs right now. Right. But n- none of us know whether we have this skill or not. I, I think I'm doing OK, but maybe I'm not. So no. g- give us sort of the <laughs> tips and tricks, if you will, for those of us who are all trying to navigate this. 
So what I would say to executives from the C-suite all the way down is that your bottom line is going to depend not just on how you navigate the transition this summer, but the one coming this fall and next year and after that. And since we don't know what they are, the most essential thing that we can do is make sure that all of your employees have the skill set to master transitions, whatever they are. But here's the thing, Andrew. There hasn't been a major book on life transitions in 40 years. In the 80s, companies used to teach this skill. My wife likes to joke that I have hard knowledge about soft skills, and we're here in this moment right now where soft skills are a lot more important. So, for example, when you look at enough transitions as I have done, they turn out to have a structure, okay? There are three phases to transition. There's the long goodbye, when you sort of say goodbye to the way things used to be. <laughs> There's this messy middle where you shed certain habits and, and, and experiment with new ones, and there's the new beginning. And then within that, there are seven tools that we can use to make sure this goes more effectively. So what I would say to executives, to anybody listening out there is, you study leadership, you study decision-making, you study communication, but how much time are you spending thinking about transitions? So what I've tried to do here is gather in one place, not just the history of transitions, but and why the old model has become outdated, but really lay out a new model based on data okay, that can help all of us navigate the situation we're in right now. So, but there's a lot of us who are stuck in our ways and maybe we're all living in the messy middle. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but how do you learn to be more adaptable? What, how does, is that a skill, a talent that you can actually learn? Absolutely. I mean, we study productivity. We study how to make meetings more efficiently. You can actually learn um, about change. I mean, a lot of this, you know, I watch a lot of CNBC and we've been talking in the last you know, six months about a V recovery versus a U recovery. And it turns out that recovery is a lot more nonlinear than that. And we're kind of we've become attached to an old fashioned way of talking about change. We don't even have a language for it. That's why people are not issuing these guidances uh, right now. OK, so for many Many years we talked about change as being cyclical because that's what farming was. And then we talked about it as being linear because that's what the industrial model was. But we are now in a post-industrial age uh, and we need a post-industrial way um, of talking about change. And that begins by saying that there, it, that this is the change is going to happen when we not ex when we least expect it and push us in ways that we don't anticipate. So what can you do? <laughs> is that you can learn the skills. We can make sure that each of us and understands that there is a method here. There are habits and takeaways and tools that you can learn, and we all need to be in effect kind of masters of transitions. I mean, I'd like to see it almost like a resume item. Like I have an. MBA. I'm good at marketing. I'm good at transitions. That's how we have to think about this skill. Okay. Uh, Bruce, the book is called Life in Transitions. We appreciate you being with us and wish you lots of luck uh, with it. It's a good read. Uh, and uh, thank you so very, very much for joining us again. Thanks. That's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. On our rundown tomorrow, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. His industry has been hard hit by coronavirus. We'll talk cash flow, furloughs, and keeping planes clean. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, too. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 